Good afternoon, this is Gary Kavner here on TRSI. I'm here today with my friend and colleague Michael Dwyer. Today is the 7th of the 4th. Michael, how have you been? We had a bit of a break and the show didn't just destroy itself. Well, not so far as we know. This could be the beginning of the end. It's too early to tell. But yeah, we, we, we had a day off and we had an Easter egg. So we'll get right into a couple of things to talk about today. First thing we want to talk about is an explanation of why 200 of the major international NGOs in the world can not just be wrong, but verging on criminality. We want to talk about the Daily Mail story on the HSE. We want to talk about a little bit of American news, actually. Looking in on Florida, there was a little bit of an incident, Michael, where 60 Minutes basically took... Yeah, The Simpsons did a skit of Homer on a uh, show called Rock Bottom being asked if he if he pinched a woman's ass. Uh, 60 Minutes, the, the real prestigious show, decided to effectively take that as inspiration and produce a fantastically edited video. Fantastically edited in a location where other people with video cameras were and it's all being shown up and it's glorious. Lots and lots of video cameras. I wanted to go through that, explain what happened, and also just talk about how common this sort of thing is. One thing I did want to mention just before we uh, get into it, that um, the gripped report from last week about a pastor being arrested in a church and dragged out, that has still not been reported anywhere in Ireland that I've seen. This is a constant theme currently of stories related to COVID that are negative, are just not being published. And this is, I think, the fourth or fifth story I've run into it's a good, decent story. Not interested, not being done, not talking about it. But not everything, only certain stories. I don't know why certain ones just aren't getting out of, uh, at all. However, I have had foreign media, Grift has had foreign media come to us asking about that video. And if they can broadcast it in other countries. Major, major media entities in other countries think that's a story. It's not in Ireland though. So I just wanted to mention that because, you know. It's just good to know that stuff isn't being reported. Which is a surprise to us all. This this year actually has been quite surprising to me. Like, I didn't have high expectations of most of Irish media. But some of the stories I've seen buried this year, uh, particularly anything that relates to the HSE or COVID, not conspiratorial stories, just stories that didn't make the HSE look good, shamelessly just buried. I know of two senior, two senior people who wrote articles. One wrote two articles and to their memory had never had an article they'd written on spec refused and both articles went up and disappeared no comment no reply just never appeared and another the other person uh, had the article shall we say spiked without comment or explanation and said never had happened before i think it is the advertising i think it is that hse advertising is the only thing holding up most of the government or most of the media at the minute and this they're just servile about it <sighs> I really want not to believe that. I really want there to be a dark, dirty, fascist conspiracy being organised by a secret committee of politicians and, and media owners. Because if it's just as tawdry as you can't risk the advertising from the HSE, it's all just too depressing. And also, because I don't actually think the HSE would pull their advertising. I don't think so either. I don't think that's. I don't think that's the way it works. I think there's 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 a, a department there. They have a requirement in law to publish nationally to tender or for jobs, and they have to go to the papers. And they have to put them in. They have to. Have, there's a certain equality that has of distribution. I think they'd go in anyway. I, I I think if there is a fear, it's a, it's 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 not a grounded one, but just a nervous nelliness. Maybe I mean we're not going to know. No, nobody's going to tell. Well, they might tell us, but they'd never go on the record. No, absolutely not. I mean, there've been lots of interesting things. Anyway, we can't really talk about some of them, and we can't prove anything. We can talk about, so we may as well crack on to the the first actual story as opposed to that. So we're not talking about the big green lizards then. Not yet. The people aren't ready for that. So let's start off. There's a group called the International Lesbian, Gay, Bisexual, Trans and Intersex uh, Association, the ILGA, which kind of makes me think they changed their name without changing the acronym. ILGA. Yeah, like bisexual, trans and intersex aren't in the acronym. Maybe they're silent letters. (laughs) Maybe there's a comment there. These guys recently signed a a declaration, uh, what's called a feminist declaration. Now, that declaration called for the elimination of laws which limit the right of adolescents to consent to sex. 
adolescent is defined by the World Health Organization as people between 10 and 19. So effectively, they signed this declaration saying that uh, there should be no laws limiting the right of people as young as 10 to uh, consent to sex. The interesting thing about that is a couple of things. This group has Irish members. In fact, it has 1,600 global members, but it has Irish members. Now, the Irish members are interesting. You have, so it has the National LGBT Federation. It's got um, Belong To, which is one of the youth services, which is one of the big transgender um, LGBT groups. It has Labour LGBT. So the, the Labour, uh, Labour's LGBT grouping. They're all members of it. And the interesting thing, Michael, is that members pay money to this group so if you're a member of this group and you paid money to it you've effectively backed a call for the elimination of uh, child sex consent laws hmm that's very on the edge but here's the other thing the declaration itself is it's 16 pages long and by the way i want to open this by saying i suspect that the problem here for a lot of people is that no one read all 16 pages the declaration itself was actually released in march of 2020 it was released by a group called the um uh, the women's rights caucus now that that is meant to be a global coalition of over 200 organizations working to advance women's human rights it does not appear to have any sort of presence anywhere I'm not sure it exists as such. Right. So the declaration itself is hosted on the website of a group called the International Women's Health Coalition, the INWC. That is a major feminist NGO. It's based in America. They say that they are co-conveners of the Women's Right Caucus. I suspect that they run the Women's Right Caucus and the Women's Right Caucus is effectively a project of the INWC. Mm. Apparently... 200 NGOs have signed up to this declaration. And looking at the kind of NGOs that I could see which had announced they had signed this declaration last year, these are major, major NGOs. Like the kind of NGOs the average person might not know, but has like consultative status at the UN kind of thing. 200 of the world's most prestigious NGOs, apparently, signed a document which at two different places on it effectively calls for the removal of child sex consent laws and no one noticed now i'm sure we'll we'll be putting the link up or the or the text up for the listeners to peruse at their own entertainment or in their own at their own time gary but uh, can you give us the quote there here's here's a section i will link to the full one so people can go on they can see that this is all in context this is exactly what it says 36 different sections of this. Section 14. Respect the right of all individuals to exercise autonomy over their lives, including their sexualities, identities and bodies, desires and pleasures, free from all types of discrimination, coercion and violence, and fully realise sexual and reproductive rights and ensure bodily autonomy, integrity and sovereignty by taking the following actions. So this is directed to governments. This is the entire part of this. That's the preamble to section 14. Section 14a. Eliminate all laws and policies that punish or criminalize same-sex intimacy, gender affirmation, abortion, HIV transmission, non-disclosure and exposure, or that limit the exercise of bodily autonomy, and here's the important part, including laws limiting legal capacity of adolescents, people with disabilities, or other groups to provide consent to sex or sexual and reproductive health services or laws authorizing non-consensual abortion, sterilization, or contraceptive use. Now, Michael, you might get to that and say, okay, maybe that's just an inelegant phrasing. Maybe they said adolescent, but they don't mean as young as 10. Or maybe there's a comma missing somewhere, or there's a comma somewhere there shouldn't be. And that's, you know, that's not what they meant. Right. Section 14G. End the criminalization and stigmatization of adolescent sexuality and ensure and promote a positive approach to young people's and adolescent sexuality that enables, recognises, and respects their agency to make informed and independent decisions on matters concerning their bodily autonomy, pleasure, and fundamental freedoms. Adolescent, again, is defined by the World Health Organization as individuals in the 10 to 19 year age group. Mm. So not just the criminalisation of sex amongst younger people, the stigmatization of sex amongst younger people. And by the way, nowhere in this document, nowhere, does it posit any sort of limit on that 
or make a point that this is for young people to be able to have sex with other young people. That that's what they're asking for. They call for the elimination of all laws and policies that limit the capacity of adolescents to consent to sex. I'll put it this way to you, Gary, as a question. Uh, Is your reading of this to say that what they're doing is they're framing what the consent laws that exist today, so which would say, for example, that the age of consent is 16 and that having sexual, uh, uh, a sex, what was the, to sexual knowledge of a person under the age of 16 is illegal and statutory rape or whatever, that rather than framing those laws as a form of protection for younger people, that they're framing those laws as being an, in, an infringement on their autonomy and their right to make choices about their own sexuality. Absolutely, which is a particularly dangerous approach to take with this, because if that is a right of 10-year-olds, well then a partial infringement of those rights would seem unjust, in the same way a full infringement of those rights would be. And so I don't think you can take this approach and then call for safeguards. This is, you know, you're all in. It's also an approach I have heard before. I think we all... I think we we have before. I mean, I think this is a subject that came up in discussion with a prominent activist visiting from the our nearest neighbour before. Yeah, when I was doing the research into the piece on Peter Thatchell, which I incidentally think is probably the best thing I've written for Gript, and by God, it's definitely the longest. Yeah, I read a lot of material from the Pedophile Information Exchange because that was related to the matter at hand. And I read some of the um, pedophile journals that some of the people Thatchell had referenced had been involved with and had written. And Michael, you could take the arguments in those journals, some of the arguments, the more, shall we say, artful arguments, and you could swap them out with this, wouldn't even notice a difference. I mean, these are word for word the arguments that these people used, particularly when they were trying to influence other groups. So they were always very careful to position it as a type of sexual liberation and a reaffirmation of bodily autonomy and the removal of state coercive control. It was always, you know, this is about the liberation aspect of it, which I think is why it played so well with a lot of the people in the liberation movements at that time. It was just designed to resonate with them. Yeah. That, I read a lot of this stuff coming from a different perspective when I I was reading, for reasons that are not important. When I was in college, I I had, because of companions, I I read a lot of the stuff uh, coming around, around Foucault and his stuff on sexuality and that cohort coming out of the 60s and the 70s, and then some of the stuff that's coming out of the radical feminist movement. And very much part of the discourse is the idea that everything that was connected with restrictions on sexuality, on stigmatizing any form of sexual expression, or any forms of sexual relationship, were essentially, they were coercive, patriarchal oppressive tools being used in order to to control people that they were also part of what alienated people from themselves that made people unhappy that made people unwell that made people mentally ill that created criminality that in fact this was a form that criminality itself was was a socially invented structure construct by the patriarchy by the oppressive bourgeois powers blah 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 the key notion they had here was this idea of this radical freedom and the key phrase that keeps coming off all the time is autonomy, autonomy, autonomy. The sense that we have to be radically free. Everything to do with your own body and your own self is a choice that you make. And if you anything infringes on your capacity to express the autonomy as you see fit, as you think is necessary for you to be your authentic self is a form of coercion and oppression. And the language in this is very, basically the same as the language we were seeing in the late 70s and the early... And, and that was language we talked about sexualization, the sexuality of children. Um, 
experimenting where adults would have sex in front of children they would talk to children about sexuality they would teach children how to be sexual with themselves and stuff that at a distance today looks horrifying incredible but within a certain clique in a certain political moment that was very much de rigueur i had thought that that moment had passed i had thought so too but this this like this as i said is is it's pretty old school in um in how it comes across now making this slightly more uncomfortable and from the conversation I had with Labour's press office earlier today, I assume this was pretty uncomfortable anyway. I uh, I call Labour press office. I was a nice chat with the lads. Just like you, know, I was asking them to confirm that Labour LGT was still a member of this group. And they were chatting away, and he was saying they'd look into it and get back. And then they're like, "And um, you know, what's the story about? By the way, just you know, out of curiosity, what do you what do you need this for?" And I was like, "Oh, because of the um, the." The, the stuff that seems to be calling for the legalization of having sex with children and there's just this sort of silence and I sort of could you um could you put all of your questions to us in an email mm-hmm. making friends michael making friends you see uh you have I, i'll be fair I, I cannot imagine that if you were to show this document to alan kelly that alan kelly wouldn't look at it jump on his desk and scream get that fucker out of here are you mad are you high i i i cannot imagine that this is anywhere near being in the ambit of the orbit of the labor party policy i mean this is so far away from i mean the likes of alan kelly brendan howland the, the redoubtable and fine Joanna Tuffy of you, who you are, I'm a fan of Sherlock down in Cork. These are sensible, decent people. I can't imagine that they would have any truck with this. Yeah, but here's the odd thing. So Labour LGBT is definitely a member, or at least the ILGA tell me that Labour is still a member of the ILGA. But here's the interesting thing I found, Michael. The ILGA used to have consultative status at the UN. Now, in 1994, that was stripped away from them. And it was stripped away from them because it turned out that the North American Man-Boy Love Association, NAMBLA, which is one of the largest pedophile advocacy groups in the world, was a member of the ILGA. (laughs) And then the ILGA, later that year, expelled NAMBLA and what they say was two other pedophile groups. They say they never supported or endorsed the position of pedophile groups and that it condemned all form of sexual abuse and exploitation. To which I think the question was, how long was NAMBLA a member of your organisation? And when did you think that was a problem? I, I also wasn't able to find out if Labour LGBT joined when NAMBLA was still inside it. But if it did, I will follow up this story purely with that fact. And primarily because I want to see Alan Kelly's reaction to it. <laughs> you know those video clips you see from the Bikini Atoll when the French do a nuclear test? That's what I'm imagining the reaction of Alan Kelly would be. Something on the, on the, on something around the, sh- the shape of a five megaton nuclear device going off. Michael, when I was looking into these guys, one of the things I immediately noticed, because it's a bit weird, there is an entire page on their website, like an entire page, dedicated to informing you that they are not pedophiles, they have never been pedophiles, and here in great detail is why we are not pedophiles. Yeah, saying to you before, they obviously haven't heard the old political adage, when you're explaining, you're losing you really don't want to be in a position where one of the things, the, the central things you have to feel you explain, you feel you have to explain to the people is that you're not pedophiles. I mean, Nambla, he would be curious to see if we can find out how long Nambla were members. But frankly, Gary, how the hell do you get them? How do you let them join in the first place? I mean, who has, who in that sphere has not heard of Nambla? Well, what they say, Michael, is that NAMBLA only got to join because at that time the ILGA did not have in place administrative procedures to scrutinize the constitutions and policies of the group seeking membership. To which you do have to go, so you didn't think the Man Boy Love Association 
was something you should look into. Did you only see it as an acronym? Did no one ever spell it out? Did you somehow miss one of the most prominent pedophilia advocacy groups in the country joining your organisation? Because we didn't have the staff to check. I, 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 no, no. But what I loved, Michael, was that to scrutinise the constitutions and policies of groups. As if to say, well, on a, on, on a glance, who would have known there was anything, you know, off about NAMBLA? Imagine, if you will, Gary, imagine, if you will, that young Fine Gael joined up with some kind of large-scale European youth political movement. And one of the groups that joins up is a group which is called the Refounded National Socialist Party of Germany and Austria. And later on, you say, well, actually, we got rid of them only three years later, because when they joined, well, we didn't actually have, we just didn't have the staff to go around and check everybody. The thing is, you'd like to think that if somebody appeared with the, with the words National Socialist Party of Germany in their title, you'd kind of say, lads, we'll put you on a, on a hold at the moment. We'll get back to you when we've gone through all the paperwork. And if everything is okay, and I'm sure it will be fine, we'll let you in then. But for the time being, maybe we'll just hold off on it. I would have thought that maybe that would have been the best thing to do with when you've got the North American Man Boy Love Association applying to join your organization. You say, listen, lads, hold off. We'll go through the paperwork. We'll have a look. I will get back to you. Surely it can't be that hard. I mean, you say that, Michael. But what what were they to do? What were they to do? I mean, they couldn't say no. That would be some kind of repressive, coercive, bourgeois notion there. You know, making judgments about people's... (laughs) Sorry, I can't. (laughs) Oh, jeez, this is just too horrible. I mean, somebody is funding this, Gary. And I have a suspicion, if these are large-scale NGOs... Are, are being organised. Somewhere, somewhere in this, there's going to be top and tape of Irish taxpayers' money going to do it as well. I would, I would say, absolutely. One thing I do like on the stat on the the page about how they are, um, they're not pedophiles. It's actually, a, it's actually about. It's, it's titled ILGA and the EcoSoc status controversy. So it's all about why they didn't have consultative status for so long. But here are the first two lines on it. On January 23rd, 2006, ILG's application for EcoStock status was rejected by the NGO committee as it had been on two previous occasions. No grounds were offered for this rejection other than an impugned link between ILGA and pedophilia. Impugned. I would have workshopped that line a bit more. <coughs> yeah. Like, I would not open if I was an NGO with... Yes, we were turned down for consultative status three times due to alleged links to pedophilia and the advocacy of pedophilia. But we assure you, we are not. And we were eventually given back the status a mere 17 years after we lost it. I'd go out in a branch there, Gary, and I'd say I would have dropped the whole pedophilia thing completely. I just don't think that it's the word you want in your, in your public-facing documentation. A lot of people have a very negative reaction Unthinkingly, perhaps, Gary, but a lot of people will just see the word paedophile and think, no, I'm not getting on board with that. The interesting other thing is that they're talking about how you know they're not pedophiles, and they, <laughs> they say things like, We've, we condemn all forms of sexual abuse and exploitation. You know, we, we condemn all forms of abuse, sexual abuse, coercion, and exploitation of children and young people. That is actually pretty much what was said by the Pedophile Information Exchange. They said exactly the same thing, because what they were doing was not abuse. And they weren't coercing people, and they weren't exploiting people. It was a mutually beneficial and loving relationship to them. Mutually beneficial, loving, and consensual. So they would come out and say, absolutely, we stand against all forms of abuse. And then you just wait, and then there's the slow sort of, however, this isn't abuse. Um, So it's amazing that they can write hundreds of words... And at the end of it, you're still like, maybe you just wanted to give an age and just say no one under this can have sex. Just shouldn't happen. That's the draw. That's the point. That's the that's the limit. And sorry. But you see, the problem with that, Gary, is that would contradict the previous statements where they say that there has to be, you have to destigmatize and decriminalize the right of adolescents to express 
their autonomy and their choices. So you can't really have both. But anyway, 200 of the world's top NGOs signed this declaration, not just this one NGO we're talking about, which remember has 1,600 members. So you could actually have potentially tens of thousands of NGOs who signed this thing. And no one noticed. No one noticed that it was calling for, for the, uh, the removal of the stigmatization of adolescent sexuality. Just happened. It's also deconstructing the notion of informed consent, is it not? Because it seems to me that not the, I don't, whether, whether or not the, the, the issue regarding autonomous and consensual relationships with children, uh, as whether or not that is the primary motive behind this, or if there's another motive, which is because I noticed that in the language it talked about uh, affirming in, in the context of transgender Oh yes, it's it's all the standard stuff about gender affirmation and that it's about gender affirmation. So we know from the we, the, re, the recent case in the United Kingdom, one of the problems that the, the Tavistock Clinic got into was on, was the basic on the capacity of children uh, to give informed consent regarding uh, puberty blockers et al. Now this seems to be an attack on the very notion of informed consent that that is itself. A, an oppressive course of doctrine, but rather that all adolescents have to be liberated and given the right to ex to exercise their autonomy and to exercise their autonomy through their giving their consent, rather than having uh, limits placed on that. And if you say, as they say, the, the Tavscott judgment said that the point was 16 and under the age of 16, they were incapable of giving informed consent. But there's a conflict there. So this is happening anyway. So uh, I will be very interested to see if this is chased up or if anyone you know asks Labour to comment on it. I would suspect at this point they will go as dark as dark can be and just pray this doesn't get picked up by someone like the Irish Times. Hmm. Or the Mail. Or the Mail. I think they will... Uh, they'll just wait it out. We'll see. It's a remarkable document anyway, and I would say to the people out there, I know it's, it's 16 pages long, which is probably too long for any of our politicians or our NGOs to actually get their heads around reading. But, you know, if you have 20 minutes to have an hour uh, to dedicate to uh, discovering what a horrible world is out there, I'd recommend you read it. And if you're a Fine Fall TD, keep your eye on this to make sure head office doesn't send it to you and tell you you have to sign it without reading it. Yes. Because remember how badly the last time that happened went. That did not work out well. I did have some amazing calls with people who signed. This was the National Women's Council of Ireland, um, for those who can't remember. They, they sent around a, a, an election pledge and Fianna Fáil head office just told Fianna Fáil TDs to sign it. And a lot of them had signed it and some of them were in the process of signing it. I had some wonderful conversations with people who had not read what they were signing. No. And then that actually did get picked up by mainstream media. And we got to see Michal Martin try and explain the things he had signed up to when he clearly hadn't read the things he had signed up to. It was the press office that told him to sign it. Yeah, and uh, it, it had some fantastic, fantastic commitments to uh, reduction in um, carbon. Oh, the, the, the carbon reduction commitments were fantastic. But it was also, wasn't there one of them about the... It's about deconstructing the nuclear family or something. <laughs> or is it, you know, it's the, the attack on the capitalist system? And it was... Uh... To remember, Michael, the National Women's Council of Ireland are the people who did sign a letter calling on gender-critical women to be stripped of legitimate political representation. So there is literally nothing they won't say. I also suspect that the NWCI did not read that letter before signing it. And I also suspect Amnesty International didn't read it before signing it. I think, Michael, there may actually be an endemic of people just signing shit without reading it. That was shameful. That was absolutely shameful. And what was more shameful was the absolute silence that was greeted, uh, that greeted it in, 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 show, in what we now call the mainstream media, that they be stripped of legitimate political representation. That was an incredible thing to say. For a group representing women... I think we broke that story as well. I think I broke that. I don't know, actually. I can't, yeah, I can't remember who covered it. I remember it. Yeah, we did. Uh, and it was it was outrageous. Uh, and particularly the women in that, this would have included women who would have been 
on the barricades back in the day, radical feminists, and they were being taught, no, no, you have to, you have to sit down and shut up now. You don't get to talk anymore. I will say, Michael, over the last year, I've really expanded my circle of feminist acquaintances and friends. Yeah, I can imagine. Like quite a lot of left-wing feminists have ended up talking to me, and the, one of the first things they're saying, like, didn't, uh, didn't see myself ever talking to you. Yeah, like, yes, the likes of you. Yes, but you see, I, I still, you know, think of you as human, and the people you thought were your friends don't. So here we are. There you go. <laughs> Strange bedfellows indeed. Oh, yeah. It always amuses me when someone calls me with a story and they're like, I never thought I'd be talking to Grift or, you know, I never liked you guys. Because you're just like, and yet here you are. <laughs> oh, Tempest or Morris. So on to the Daily Mail story. This is just a, a quick little thing. We talked about the Daily Mail and how they had broken the story of how the HSEs, the vaccine uh, portal which staff were using was unsecured. Anyone had the link could sign in. The HSE say they were occasionally verifying people. No one actually seems to know if that happened, how often it happened. Anyone who had the link could sign in, say they worked as anything or nothing, and get the vaccination. Massive, massive story. The HSE is saying it cannot show the occupation of 25% of the people who signed up. We're talking about over 50,000 people. Of the people who selected an occupation, they appear to have no way of verifying that those occupations are actually accurate, which is to say the HSE cannot stand over effectively any of the people who are vaccinated. Massive, massive story, I, sh I would say, should bring down both Paul Reed and Stephen Donnelly, just on its merits. Yeah. And it's been odd, because you haven't seen the sort of blanket refusal to cover it that you saw with like the ISAG stuff or some of the other stuff that the Irish media hasn't covered. Instead, they've covered it, but without actually talking about the fact it was the Daily Mail who broke it or given the specifics of the issue. So here's one in the Irish Independent. HSE chief vows to look into health worker jab figures. Colm Henry admits numbers vaccinated in the second cohort of frontline health workers seems to be quite high. <laughs> seems to be quite high. Not seems to be maybe a hundred thousand out. No. And so it goes true, you know, that the, the HSE is, there's been some controversy and the HSE is going to look into it and, you know, see how it goes. And then it says, perhaps the most damaging controversies around the vaccine rollout emerged in the last fortnight. Reports of backroom staff, administration staff and others in non-patient facing roles getting vaccinated ahead of those in medically vulnerable cohorts were multiplied across several media outlets. Then it talks about the Beacon Hospital. Then it talks about the Coombe Hospital. Then it talks about the Coombe Hospital some more. Then it talks about the Beacon Hospital some more. Which is what? All the 23 vaccines? Uh, somewhere in the region of 23, Michael. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Wow. And then it goes, well, meanwhile, more than 230,000 healthcare workers have been vaccinated. And it says the healthcare service directly employs 100,000. And there are many private facilities but questions have been raised as to whether there can be that many frontline healthcare workers in the state. And then Dr. Colm Henry, who is very high up in the HSE, says the numbers seem high and that number does seem very big. And then they just, then they talk about the beacon some more. Yeah, because that's the story. I have seen this ha reported in the Irish Times as well. They have reported the HSE talking about how queue jumping is marginal, but that they're going to review security, they're going to improve procedures, that numbers may be a bit high. But no one I have seen actually say, well, the reports suggest that the HSE totally lost control of its vaccination uh, platform and would have vaccinated absolutely anyone who turned up on the day. Yeah. If only we'd known. So the end result of this is you read the pieces and you say, okay, well, you know, they, they want to tighten it after the beacon and the coom, which again is about 23 vaccines. And no, it's because the HSE cannot stand over several hundred thousand vaccines. Now, most of those, one would assume, went to healthcare staff. But they can't prove that. They don't have the verif... They didn't have the verification systems in place to prove it. They can't prove it now. I mean, I was talking to someone earlier, someone who writes for in the media, is very involved in the media, and you know, is deliberately looking out for these kind of stories. And I mentioned it, and he just sort of went, what? Had not heard about it at all. Did not know it had happened. The Daily Mail had reported it at all. It didn't leak out. And usually these things no matter how much one might dislike the particular outlet that it came from as a competitor, 
once they break the story, then, you know, if it's a big story, and this is a big story, and to be, let's be honest, we don't really know how big. We, we don't really know how many vaccines. But I can say with confidence, Gary, we're talking more than 23. But it didn't leak. It didn't seep out. It didn't get any. The mail published it, and there it died. What is actually interesting is that they are actually, they're technically covering the story, but it's grossly presented. The only reasonable expectation after reading what they're putting out, and the Irish Times has done exactly the same thing, is to think it is about something entirely different than what it's actually about. The HSC is not saying the numbers seem high because of the fucking beacon. There would be no reason to do that because 23 vaccines. They're doing this because the Daily Mail showed, and it looks like their reporting was accurate, that the HSE, if like 25% at that time was about 50,000 people. Yeah. Which the last time I checked, Michael, is a bit more than 23. Gary, you said they, they're covering the story. I think, to be honest, I mean, that's, that's more than generous. They're, they're covering the story in the, in the sense that they're putting a blanket over it. They're not uncovering the story. That remains one of my favourite quotes about journalism, that the job of modern journalists is to cover important stories with a pillow until they stop moving. <laughs> yeah. Because, I, mean, yeah. I don't think even the best-intentioned person could read those stories and regard them in any sense, really, as being a, a form of covering the Daily Mail but, story. No, they're, they're there so that if someone brings them up on this... They can say, well, we covered it. We did cover it. Yeah, we responded. Nothing they have written is inaccurate. Everything about that is perfectly accurate. It's totally fucking misleading. But there is nothing in those articles that is incorrect. And that is the point of them. That they enable them to say, we covered it. And I don't get why they're doing it. Because it's a big story. And if no one else is covering it, and the Daily Mail doesn't have that big a readership, it's... Mostly people in Finnafall just saying how pissed off they've made Lee <laughs> based on what they said to his wife last. So, you know, if you're the IT or the Indo, break it. Get the accolades, get the awards. Yeah. And they don't. They're just doing this nonsense. Yeah, I don't know. It is it is a puzzlement, as my plumber used to say. It is a puzzlement. Anyway, just to, to wrap up, I wanted to talk about um, 60 Minutes, as I said. Well, I suppose the thing about the 60 Minutes story, Gary, at least it's a demonstration. It's not just in Ireland, but it's a it's a, a malaise which is spread across the world when it comes to reportage and our ability to turn on the news, which listen to the news, and kind of unreflectingly trust it in the way that we might have done 30 years ago, even whatever. Maybe we're even then we were wrong, I don't know. But I, I, I have the feeling that there was a greater degree of basic attempt at impartiality. Everybody always had a point of view. But the DeSantis story in Florida is its just gross. American media, large parts of American media, were bad before Trump. But Trump legitimately drove some of them mad. CNN in particular, before Trump, it was quite left-wing. You couldn't trust it on certain things. But it at least made an attempt to be... Like, no, not totally off the wall. Tr during the Trump era, yeah. it's just, even people I know on the left in America and in Ireland who used to watch it just to get a sense of what was happening, stopped. They went to the other American networks because it was just went mad. It was why I found it very funny. We had one of the, uh, what was it, Donny O'Sullivan, the Irish guy who works for CNN, on over to tell us about misinformation. And it was wonderful because most Irish people don't know enough about the Irish media market to kind of look, or the American media market, to look at that and be like, this is ridiculous. You don't, CNN. Where I think if you, if they brought over someone from Fox, people would have had the appropriate reaction to someone from CNN being brought on. They are yeah. very similar networks at the same, at this time, just different political ideologies. Something about that drove them mad anyway. And now they're just bad at this. But 60 Minutes made the terrible mistake to manipulate video in what can only be described as a, a deeply misleading way, when there were other video cameras there who had captured the entire thing. So what happened is they, in Florida at the minute, you have a governor called Ron DeSantis. Now, DeSantis has been, he's been handling the COVID case. Some people say very well, some people say not at all. It's, it's the standard COVID thing. However, 
There's a grocery store called Publix and they give $100,000 to his 2022 re-election campaign. Now, in Irish uh, terms, that's an incredible amount of money. In American terms, it's not nothing, but you're not beholden to someone for 100k. What happened with Publix is Publix were picked to handle part of the distribution of COVID vaccines to certain areas in Florida. There, It's a drugstore and pharmacy as well. And it's not the only place you can get vaccines. There's hospitals, there's drive through clinics. but Walgreens. Yeah, it is one of them. And what 60 Minutes were trying to do was to link DeSantis to that and say, this is a pay-for-play, this is corruption, this is favoritism, this is whatever. And they went to a press conference and they asked him about it. And what I'll, I'll include the, the video that they broadcast and the actual raw footage of it in one video uh, in the bottom of this um, podcast because it's, it's difficult to explain all of it. They asked him a question and then they cut out of that question every single line where he explained what had happened. And he explained it quite well and gave quite a lot of detail and he, he clearly knew what he was talking about. And they removed all of it. And what they left in was him just saying, you're wrong and you don't care about the facts. Which is actually amusing because he said, I have just put it to you in a way that is incontrovertible and you clearly don't care. You don't care about the facts. And they just cut all of it out. But the thing about it, the, when he, the way it was presented and the way he phrased it, apparently, it gave it kind of a Trumpian feel to it. Because that's the kind of thing that Trump would have done. He would have hummed it hard. He would have said some stuff. He wouldn't have actually responded to the question and then would have just said, you're wrong, you're wrong, you're wrong. This is fake news. You don't care about the facts. And I imagine that's what that's the kind of picture frame they wanted to hang around DeSantis was. This guy's just another Trump. It was very much cut in that way. The problem is when you actually see the full video of it, DeSantis gives a full detailed explanation of why this was appropriate and also that this wasn't something he went to these areas with, the, these counties. This is something that the mayor of this county, this particular county that 60 Minutes was focusing on, had come to him about and had met him and had asked him about it and would he do this? And he had said yes. So it doesn't even look like DeSantos made the decision at all. But 60 Minutes goes ahead, they put up their version and then immediately the raw footage leaks from a different camera. And it looks ridiculous. Then things start getting worse because the Democratic mayor of the area that they were asking about comes out and says, that f I, I've seen the footage and that wasn't just deceptively edited, that was an outright lie. Th that mayor offered to talk to 60 Minutes about the situation and explain anything that they wanted and they refused to talk to him. But what he said was that 60 Minutes knew that he had gone to DeSantos and he had asked him to go with this method of... Um, of vaccine distribution in his area. So 60 Minutes knew the truth of it and they just didn't care. Now, if anything, this is actually a massive boon for DeSantis because it's so, so obvious that um, not even the Democrats are going to stand over it. America is a highly partisan country, but in relation to this, even the Democrats are like, that is ridiculous. You can't just do that. You can't, if you're going to do it, you certainly can't get caught. And one of the most ridiculous things about the way they did it, they did it in a, in, a, in a way which they had to get caught. They did it in front of a whole bank of other people with cameras and recording machines, for Christ's sake. It, it's hard to understand what they, what they wanted to achieve out of this, what they thought they were going to achieve. They mustn't, they can't have thought that somebody wasn't going to produce the full unedited version of it. I mean, there's no way they're that naive or stupid. But they went ahead and did it anyway. And I think, Gary, this is actually goes back to the, the point you made in the introduction. That what is kind of interesting in the, about this story is that the way a moment in politics or a shift in politics in the United States in its culture has literally driven this company mad. This was not a rational choice. A bunch of people, a bunch of editors, news directors sitting around having a reasonable and rational discussion about this would have recognised that this was going to backfire badly. But they seem to have just lost complete perspective on this. Uh, as you said, like bef before before Trump, CNN was what CNN was, but it was still a place that people, I, I would know, say from the sort of moderate right, conservatives, Republicans, it's like, would still go out and look at what was 
was on CNN. A friend of mine said, nowadays, CNN's got so bad, I'll actually, I'll, I'll watch Eminence MSNBC rather than CNN. And anybody who knows the, their, their networks in the States, that would tell you that how things, how bad things are gone. It's, it's just a weird moment. And I don't think it's a weird moment unique to the United States. It may have reached a particular point there. But I think it's, it's an odd thing that's happening all over the world. Is it, to, is it to do with the polarization of politics? Is it to do with the abandonment of the idea of the journalist as reporter and now the journalist is an advocate for the truth rather than a reporter of facts? Facts ultimately are subjective. They're things that you choose rather than things that exist really. But this was just a bizarre story. And if you, if you think of them as a rational organization making rational choices, it just doesn't make sense. The only sense is that they are a group that have been maddened, basically, by, by Donald Trump. Yeah, I, I think two things there. I think it is partially um, increasing partisanship. I think it's increasingly... It used to be that in journalism, you started working at local papers and you then eventually made your way to the nationals. You might have a degree, you might not. If you did, it wouldn't be in journalism. Journalism was a craft. And because of that, it drew in a fairly wide cross-section of society. Nowadays, it is something that is done by middle-class to upper-middle-class people who have college degrees. It has become more and more ideologically homogenous. And the problem with that is, as groups become more similar and they agree on more things, they tend to become more extreme on certain things. And I think that's part of what we've seen added to this you do again. So you have those two things combining with it. The New York Times, I think, is going to be a really interesting one to watch because they've switched from a very advertisement heavy model to one which is largely funded by subscriptions. And people were positioning that and they're saying, oh, this will be, you know, they'll break away from these corporate interests and they'll be able to write all these really interesting stories. And what people didn't realize, and I think largely still don't realize, is that if you draw all of your readership and subscriptions from a very hom homogeneous group of people who, let's say, like you because you attacked Trump or you attack the right, the moment you stop doing that, if that is why they're interested in you rather than news in general, they will leave. And so when you publish, now a newspaper can publish things and see in real time how many people that is costing them. And they can see if you, if you say these things, you will lose this amount of subscribers and that's worth this amount of money to you. It's a dangerous model, potentially. It's, there's been a big debate in the UK about this. The Spectator uh, magazine, news magazine in the United Kingdom, centre-right, conservative, traditionally, uh, the oldest uh, magazine of his kind. I think it describes itself in the world. And it's a fine, I, a fine mag. I like it. Douglas Murray is the, jun is the junior editor. Is, they moved to a subscriber-only platform, which meant that they could say to people, no, well, F off. We're not interested. Do you remember somebody, one, uh, uh, was it an NGO or a, a government department somewhere in, in England said they weren't going to advertise in the Spectator anymore? And Andrew Neil said to him, fine, go away. We don't want your advertising anyway. Well, I have, what people have said that Spectator has to has a, a, a tricky a, a tricky path to follow. It has up to now been very successful in getting and increasing its number of subscribers and expanding its circulation, and being uh, a financially viable uh, news magazine newspaper. However, there is that danger. People have been saying that it's a concern that they may see it happening, is that it will speak more and more to its base. It will speak more and more to its subscribers rather than having the kind of diversity and plurality of opinions that make it an interesting magazine, where that diversity of opinion that makes it worthwhile reading and will attract a, a kind of a broad base of, of readers. But if you become very concerned about your your subscriber base, then you 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 become a damaged item because essentially you just become a sounding box to reflect the opinions and prejudices of the people who buy you because they just want to read something that comforts them in their opinions rather than something that might actually challenge them. So it's a tricky thing. Now I think the Spectator so far is doing pretty well on that, but the the Times, I. I as you say, the Times is moving in that direction, and it'll be interesting to see to the extent the Times is capable of, indeed, are indeed willing 
to be a genu to be the national newspaper of the United States, which is what it wants to be. It wants to be the national newspaper, the paper record for the whole of the United States. Now you can't be that if you're going to ignore what is at any one time roughly 50% of the population. The United States is divided 50-50, roughly between Republicans and Democrats most of the time. There's never going to be, there's never a massive difference between one side and the other. And if you ignore one half of the population, then you're nowhere near being a national newspaper. And I, I think the Times is going to find it very challenging to remain the national newspaper on a subscriber. Well, it hasn't been for a while anyway, so maybe it doesn't make no, any I, difference. I, I think it very much depends on the group of people that you're pulling from, why they're subscribing to you, and also how far you're willing to go to pull subscribers. So during the Trump administration, like let's say CNN's ratings shot up massively. They, they got massive amounts of viewers. And actually, as soon as Trump left, a lot of them collapsed. But CNN leaned into that deliberately. They chose yes. to go down that path. So to start with, it was something that they chose to do. It was a rational decision. The Times, to a certain degree, has made the same decision. But there's always a potential amount of people you can reach versus what are you willing to do to get these people and where i think it's actually gone the full way and where you will see what happens when an organization just you know, wins the world but loses its own soul is the aclu the modern aclu is basically an entirely new organization that's hollowed out the body of the aclu and is wearing it like a cheap suit there was a very good article i think it was in her this week talking precisely about was it the disreputable death of the SLU, you compare it to the organization uh, which defended Nazis who wanted to wanted to march through Skokie in Chicago uh, because they were so utterly, blindly, fanatically committed to free speech in this absolutely unconditional kind of way. They despised the people that they were defending, and the people that they were defending, by the way, probably despised them, because very many, historically, of the people in the ACLU and, and the lawyers working for them would have been these young Jewish radical liberal lawyers. What happened with the ACLU is, again, when Trump got elected, there was this frenzy about Trump is going to take away our rights. So the ACLU's membership went crazy. They gained massive amounts of people. And instead of looking at that and saying, look, some of these people clearly do not give a shit about the things we care about. This is a political move for them. And if we just do what we're always doing, we'll lose most of them, but we might keep some of them. And we're not going to lose our core people. We can keep going. They looked at it and they saw either the opportunity for money or for power or for prestige. And they leaned in. And in leaning in, they absolutely destroyed themselves. To just one thing before we, um, we wrap up on this. The DeSantis thing, to, to take what you have said and edit it, incredibly dishonestly and without any intent to be fair to you that's not unusual that's perfectly normal that yeah. happens regularly in media sources where you wouldn't even think it would you would think would not even in deal with the thought of that they will regularly do it. if you see an interview and someone sits down there's three minutes of footage of them that could be from a too long a two hour long interview you could be looking at people's responses to entirely different questions that have been recut back together anytime the camera moves in an interview there is an opportunity to edit you can actually do it without that but there's visual signs but when you switch from one camera to the other very easy to edit it to it's something entirely different i remember talking to people and it was a crisis situation it was a bit of crisis pr and they were saying about it wasn't in ireland it was actually in a different country but they were saying about going and doing this interview and i was saying you won't get through it Th these people do not want you to get through it and they have total control over the end product you don't have two or three hours of conversation with someone where they can cut out the questions they can cut out the context and they can stitch it back together and come out of it looking good if they don't want you to look good that's simply the long and short of it. They will do this to you because they can do it to you and you have no recourse most of the time. There's no law stopping them from doing it. It's blatantly dishonest. It's absolutely unethical and it should never happen. But it, it's normalized to a large part now. Different stations and different reporters will have different standards of it. But never assume anything you see on TV. Any interview is actually as that interview was conducted. And that kind of relates to... Like what we've seen with these um, these two women from uh, who came back from Dubai, a mandatory hotel. I don't 
want to get into the the idea of mandatory hotel or anything like that but people have been asking why these people are like why are they on the front page why are they being named why is all this stuff happening and it's the great truth of media as it is with international relations at the core of everything it's not ethics and it's it's not morality it's power these people are being shit on because they've no way to stop other people from shitting on them. These women do not have the money to bring any kind of case, assuming that any of the papers would even go far enough to create that. They don't have the ability or the connections to make problems for these papers if these papers report something that is maybe not inaccurate, but is very (laughs) carefully positioned. There's nothing they can do to the papers, they're of no use to the papers, and they're no risk to the papers. So the papers are going to do whatever they want with them. Whereas if this was someone who had money, or if this was someone who could help the papers because they're a source or something like that. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. This wouldn't be how this would be reported. And that's the real difference. The paper, Lots of papers would, if it was possible, report like this on anyone. But they don't because those people are of use to them or they have money or they have very good lawyers. Sure. Listen, we saw, we saw it happen to a young friend of ours who was dreadfully treated and abused and had language used about him in the papers, which was absolutely outrageous. But they did so in the confident belief that he was a young person without resources and without the capacity ultimately to try. If, if, you're, if, you, have, if you have the money, Irish defamation laws, if you, re, if you know how to use them right, can make, you can make a decent income. But if you don't have money, you don't have the capacity to risk your, if you, say if you have a house and you want to put it on mortgage it, it is an incredibly risky game to play going up against a newspaper or a large organisation to take a defamation suit. And they know that. They know that if they string it out along, they'll bleed you. And they know that the vast majority of, people, of, 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 of ordinary people don't have the capacity or the money or the desire or the courage. I mean, maybe the courage is the wrong word, but you know what I mean? To go through, take that kind of risk. It's a real roulette thing. And in their their happy confidence, that means that they will shit all over them, as you say. But if it's somebody, shall we say somebody with more than a few million in the bank, then they're far, far more careful about how how they will speak about them. Yeah, and um, that, I think, is a very important point for media literacy reasons, Michael. Do not think the media cannot make you look bad. The media will make you look any way it wants. And even... Even people who have enormous experience of it. I mean, look at the example recently. I mean, Jordan Peterson must be the most misquoted man on the face of the earth. And you'd think that at this stage of his career, he'd be so used to it that he'd be hyper vigilant. We had the famous Channel 4 interview. We had the GQ interview. God knows how many. And yet, not that long ago, he sat down and did an, uh, an interview at the Sunday Times, which, at least from his perspective, turned into an absolute hatchet job. Now, he's a man. He has money. He has plenty of experience. He is intellectually a bright man with uh, significant with linguistic capacities. And yet, they did him up like a kipper. Merely having the money and things like that, if they think there's a use in making you look a particular way, yeah, oftentimes they'll still do it. But there's a fine line between something that's actionable and something that's unfair. Making you look... Yeah, exactly. They can be horrendously unfair, and they can make you look like an, an idiot without ever actually defaming you. And then, of course, if you complain, you're attacking a free press. You're just being a whinger. You're a crybaby. You can't take it. You're, you're talking about free speech all the time. You're talking about taking it on the chin. Talking about talking, take, talking, talking, uh, telling truth to power and all that. And here, that's all we're doing. Which is why, by the way, if you're ever doing an interview, uh, record it and tell them that you're going to record it. Yeah. Or don't, if you think they're going to fuck you. Well, yeah, yeah. No, you don't have to tell them. Just record it. But the best advice is don't do the interview. No, if... Well, never talk to media just because you can talk to media. Always have a purpose to talk to media. And it, assume... Like, what was it? it was a Torquemada's quote that, uh, give me six words and I'll find enough to hang a man. <laughs> yeah, I think that's he's given as a quote, but I'm sure that a nice man like Torquemada... Dominican priest would never have said such a thing. But, like, I have talked to educated, knowledgeable people, political people, who have been offered opportunities for interviews during terrible times and have legitimately thought, 
I will sit down with this guy for, you know, 45 minutes, an hour, two hour, and I will convince him. And you're looking at me like, no, this isn't designed for you to convince anyone. This is designed for you to get fucked. And that's the only outcome here that's going to happen unless you are incredible in such a way it cannot be edited, which is quite difficult to do. I'm sitting in a hotel in Dublin with a, uh, uh, an individual in that situation, and he kept saying, but I, I have to get my story out there. People have to know my side of the story. And I kept saying, but they're not going to let you do that. That's not what's going to happen. You will tell your story to them, but that's not the story they will tell to us. And anyway, this is why people don't like the media, <laughs> and why they're actually a lot of the time not perfectly right to not like the media the media is uh taken as a whole not trustworthy frankly but anyway uh we shall be back all things being equal on today's today today's wednesday isn't it so friday we'll be back on friday we'll be back on friday uh all things being equal so keep washing your hands and we'll see you then all the best <laughs>